0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, in, during the season of Epiphany, uh, in our gospel readings, we have been sitting with these signs that make up the first half of John's gospel. And this Sunday, we come to the final sign of Jesus in John's gospel. It's a story many of us are familiar with. In fact, it takes up the whole of chapter 11 of John's gospel, uh, of which I only read the first six verses This morning. And one of the things that we've been talking about these past few weeks is that these signs, like all signs, uh, are served to orient us to something that is first and foremost true about God, but these signs also point to orient us towards something that is true about ourselves. And that brings us to the first movement in the passage I want to invite us to sit with this morning, which is the death of Lazarus and the mocking of hope. The death of Lazarus and the mocking of hope. Uh, In this movement, I think we need to sit with the question, why do we need orientation or reorientation toward God and toward something true about what it means to be human in the first place? And as Evan hinted at, it's because we live and have always lived in a world, especially between Eden and new creation, that is continually giving us things and putting us in places that disorient us. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, one of uh, my favorite Old Testament scholars, says that this is one of the central patterns in the Hebrew Psalms, is this constant cycle of orientation, disorientation, and the need to be reoriented to God and how the world works. That this disorientation came on the back end of what other people did to the people of God, to the sufferings they endured but also to the sufferings that they put on other people, to the sins and the disobedience that they committed. And so one of the reasons why I have grown to so deeply treasure and love the Psalms is because whatever season you find yourself in, whether it's a season of orientation, of disorientation, of the need of reorientation, there is a Psalm for that. There are words that God has given us to give back to him. It's also one of the reasons that ever since I was young, I've always loved the spiritual songs within the black church, a tradition that, like the Hebrew people, know what it is to be oppressed, know what it is to have violence done against them, and in the midst of that oppression and in the midst of that violence, to turn their attention and their hearts and to root their hope in God. Not root their hope simply in their sufferings coming to an end, but finding God in the midst of it. And this story is no different. John 11 is the long account of the death and resurrection of Lazarus, who is a dear friend of Jesus. Outside of the 12 disciples, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are Jesus' closest friends. In fact, any time that Jesus is ever around Jerusalem in the Gospels, he's always finding a way to sneak away to Bethany in order to be with his friends. And in John 11, Lazarus gets sick. And Lazarus's name in Hebrew literally means God has helped. And so if you stop halfway through the first half of John 11, Lazarus's name is mocking reality. God has helped, and yet here is the best, one of the best friends of Jesus who has grown sick. Jesus lingers, and because of that lingering, because of that delay, Lazarus dies. At a very young age, Lazarus' name, God has helped, is a mockery of hope. And we know what's coming, right? Jesus knows what's coming. But it's important to remember that in this moment, no one else knows that resurrection is coming. No one else is expecting Jesus to come to stand before the tomb and with a few words call Lazarus out. And I think one of the questions we need to sit with is where is hope being mocked in our life right now? This is one of the central human experiences between Eden and new creation. Delay, loss, grief, shattered dreams, failed expectations. And there is a lot of goodness and there is a lot of beauty in this life. But there is a lot about this life, about our human experience that mocks the idea of hope. Our hope is mocked by circumstances. Our hope is under the assault by the powers and principalities of darkness. And as God reminds us and the authors of scripture remind us and our great tradition reminds us that hope is not something that we can simply muster up ourselves. Paul says this to the church in Rome, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope as you trust in him. Paul here is asking the God of hope to fill the community of God's friends in Rome with hope, with joy, and with peace. And notice that Paul adds, as you trust in him. Uh, throughout the scriptures, trust and faith are synonymous. In fact, you could actually go through and replace the word faith with trust everywhere you find it. In fact, David Benner, uh, in his commentary on John, who I've looked to quite a bit in this time that we've been spending in John's gospel, actually says that the better translation of the Greek, especially in John's gospel, isn't trust, but relax. To relax in Jesus. Trust and faith are almost synonymous. And as a very wise mentor of mine reminded me recently, faith and trust, relaxing in God, is a gift that must be received, it must be wanted. Very rarely does God simply just pour out faith and pour out trust. But when we do ask God for it, we also must be willing to let him lead us through that which is necessary to prepare for it. And so at the end of this first movement, again, the question is, where is hope being mocked in our life right now? And I think even to take it a step further, where is hope being mocked in our world and in our community? Again, I mentioned this last week, suffering and troubles have a way of giving us tunnel vision, especially tunnel vision, to only see our own suffering, our own despair, and to be blinded to the suffering and the despair around us. And so where is it that hope is being mocked? And I wonder if, I know there has been for me this week, an invitation from Holy Spirit to ask for faith, to ask for trust. And that brings us to the second movement that Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. Lazarus is sick and they send simply a word, Jesus, the one you love is ill. And what I would submit to you this morning is that in this movement, we see uh, what I think is a clear example of intercessory prayer. Of people like the the two friends in Luke 5 that carry their friend to Jesus. They can't press. If you remember the story, they can't get into the house where Jesus is. And so they, they literally carry their friend to the roof. They rip apart the roof and they lower them down to Jesus. That is what Mary and Martha are doing with their brother. They are sending word. Jesus, the one you love is ill. They are interceding on his behalf. In a moment of need and of pain, they send word to Jesus. And there's a few things I want us to sit with when it comes to prayer and intercessory prayer this morning. And the first is this. I'm convinced prayer is at the heart of how we co-labor with God. I talk about this a lot, and so I'm not going to sort of belabor the point this morning. But you and I were created for a cooperating friendship with God. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for we are God's servants, co-laboring with God. At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright was being asked a lot about how does the church need to respond in this moment? And there's a line that he just kept repeating, and I think it is so important. He says, if you look back over the centuries, all the way back to Jesus, when the disciples say, Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray, and essentially, he gives us the Lord's Prayer, which is that it's very hard intercession on behalf of ourselves, of our communities, of our homes. He says, the pattern you continually see in moments of great darkness is that the people of God have always been called to be a people of prayer at the place where the world is in pain. Now, the difficulty here is that oftentimes, and I've even been guilty of this, we sort of divide prayer and action. We go, you need to pray, but you also need to act. And I understand what we're responding to. We're responding to, in the face of difficulty and suffering, this unwillingness to serve, to, to give of our, of our time and our money in order to help. And we're like, well, I'll just, I'll pray for you. But the, the, the danger is that we respond to how it was done poorly, right? That's sort of the 11th commandment in evangelicalism in the church. Thou shalt not do what others do poorly. And so we respond to that, and what begins to happen is we don't view prayer as action. I'll pray and I'll act. And yet what I would submit to you is what we see in the life of Jesus is that prayer is action. That prayer is doing something. In fact, there is warning after warning after warning about going forward and acting without praying. Without asking God, is this mine to carry? Is this mine to speak to and so prayer is at the heart of how we co-labor with God. I would also say that one of the reasons, and this is one of the conversations the Holy Spirit and I have been having this week, is that one of the reasons why there can be such an absence of prayer, especially for others in my own life, is because I've just got, I had gotten to the point where I was going, I just don't know that prayer actually changes anything. But that is the second thing that I would say, is that prayer can change situations. Throughout scripture, throughout the story of the exodus, we see Moses interceding on behalf of the people of God and actually changing God's mind. In Revelation 8, I love this image of the saints' prayers. It says, in the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints rose up before God. When we pray, when we gather together in this place to pray, when we pray in our homes and in our cars, we change the environment of the throne room of God. Archbishop William Temple was once quoted as saying, the coincidences occur, they seem to occur much more frequently when I pray. Prayer can actually change things. But the third thing I would say about prayer this morning is prayer is learned from Jesus. Again, the disciples go to Jesus. It's interesting, there's not much that they ask Jesus to teach them to do. But one of the things is, Lord, teach us to pray. It's one of the earliest things they asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And I would argue this is where Mary and Martha learned to do exactly what it is that they're doing. They had learned from Jesus. And it's one thing to go, well, okay, well, Jesus prayed, so we should pray. But I actually think we need to go deeper than that. We need to ask the question, what is it that Jesus believed about the world that made him the kind of person that when he saw need, his, his instinctual heart was one to pray? And I would, and there's a lot of time that we could spend on this, but here's the one thing I want to highlight this morning, is I'd argue Jesus believed in his bones that the Father was present, that the Father was listening, that the Father was attentive. And not just that, but the Father was speaking, that the Father cared deeply about what moved Jesus' heart. In fact, this is the reason why Paul tells us in Romans 8 that Holy Spirit, one of Holy Spirit's jobs One of Holy Spirit's roles is to intercede on our behalf. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit takes our groans and our groans are Holy Spirit's prayers. So the question at the end of the second movement is, do I believe that God is present and attentive? Do I believe that prayer actually changes things? And I think the invitation from the Holy Spirit is to confess, I believe, help my unbelief. That's where I am today, Sunday, February 20th. Holy Spirit, I believe prayer changes things, help my unbelief. But to also begin to practice praying for those in my life, in my community, to those God brings to mind. And again, I could spend five Sundays talking about intercessory prayer. And there are dozens and dozens of books I can recommend, but here's what I would say just very quickly. If you go to, and it feels like a weird thing to say in the middle of a sermon because it feels like a plug, but it's not. But if you go to allsoulseville.com prayer and you scroll all the way to the bottom, we've actually put an excerpt uh, that is chapter three from Richard Foster's Celebration of the Disciplines. And it's one of the best little chapters I've ever read on prayer and intercessory prayer. But that's also the place where we have an intercessory and a healing prayer team here at All Souls, because as a community, we believe prayer actually changes things. That part of being a community that practices the way of Jesus is to hold space, to pray for healing, to intercede on your behalf. And so if you are also in a place where you're like, I don't even know if I can pray because I need prayer, that's also a place to reach out so that we can be praying. And this brings us to the third movement which is Jesus delays in coming. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus and Jesus delays. And isn't that how often prayer feels? Jesus delays. In fact, in in Jesus' delay, Lazarus dies. When Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Uh, James Baldwin in his book, The Fire Next Time, says, the Lord never seems to get there when you want him. Amen. Amen but when he arrives, he's always on time. And this saying fits the end of John 11 really well, but it does not at first lessen the pain of those who are suffering. Jesus's delay hurts. Waiting on God hurts. And our text is honest about that. Jesus is late in coming. And there's two interactions that Jesus has. The first is with Martha, but I want to focus our attention on the second interaction that he has, which is with Mary. Because Mary comes out guns blazing. I love Mary. She's one of my favorite. I cannot ever read, see any representation of Mary and not just cry. She is one of my favorite people in all the gospels. And one of the reasons for that is this moment. She comes out guns blazing. She comes out going, if you had been here, This would not have happened. If you had been here, this would not have happened. And in this moment, we get one of the most honest laments in all of Scripture. She comes to God in the flesh and names reality and accuses. She is frustrated and angry and sad and riddled with grief. I've watched you heal. I've watched you feed. I've watched you deliver. You've delivered me. And you, and you waited? And in this moment, what's our expectation of Jesus? What's our expectation? Is it Mary, calm down. Mary, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I'm going to do? Don't you just, can't you have a little more faith? Can't you, right? That's the expectation of Jesus. But what does Jesus do? What he doesn't do is give her a pep talk. What he doesn't do is shame her. He doesn't even, there's no air of frustration with Jesus. But Jesus' response is, where have you laid him? Where have you put him? He looks at his friend in her anger and grief and says to her, will you take me to the place where all hope is lost? And friends, I think God wants to ask us the same question. Where have you laid him? Will you take me to the place where all hope is lost? What God wants us to do is to welcome him to the graveside. And I recognize that that can be a scary thing, in part because, I don't know about you, I don't like funerals. I don't like gravesides. I grew up the son of a pastor, and we spent a lot of time at gravesides. We spent a lot of time around death, and it doesn't seem to be letting up. And not just physical death, but the death of marriages and of friendships, the death of stories, the death of churches. And Jesus goes, will you, will you show me? Will you show me? How do you respond to a God like that? How do you respond to a God that doesn't go, get it all together, just have more faith. It'll be okay. How do you respond to a God who looks at you and goes, show me where hope is lost? I think we respond like Mary responded. Good Mary. Come and see friend, come and see. This is the kind of person I hope to be, who with Mary can acknowledge my friend as Lord and invite him into the places of deepest pain. And what kind of person is Jesus when he gets there? The first thing he does is weep. My instinct is to fix Just get going. Get the stone. Let's get it off. Come on, y'all. I know it stings. Let's go. Right? I want resurrection without a tear-stricken face. But Jesus is completely fine with resurrection and a tear-stricken face. Jesus goes, looks at his friends, and he weeps. Before any miracle, Jesus enters into the pain with them. In this moment, Jesus weeps with the world's weeping. Friends, God cares about the things that weigh your heart down, the things that trouble you, the places of hopelessness and death. He cares. And the question he would ask you today is, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? And will our response be, come, Lord. And see. My friends, beloved, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.